This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Our guest this week, John Longworth, is a real titan of UK PLC, As a scientist, businessman, entrepreneur and advocate for the interests of British business, there aren't many who have John's breadth or depth of experience. Something he's bringing to bear now as chairman of the Independent Business Network, which represents our often ignored small and family-owned businesses. John and I sat down for a fascinating chat about how the government can make a success of Brexit, the long-standing problems with the British economy and especially manufacturing, and what British healthcare will look like in the decades to come. John, welcome to the CapEx podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We've got an enormous amount to talk about. um, But just before we get stuck into our discussion about business and Brexit and all that good stuff, can you just fill our listeners in on who you are, how you came to uh, occupy the position you do now at the Independent Business Network, your career in business? Tell us a bit about, you know, your career so far. Okay, well, I'll do a whistle stop because otherwise I think people will be nodding off. I started out as a scientist. Believe it or not, I actually have a degree in environmental sciences and a postgrad by research in atmospheric physics. So I know uh, what I speak when it comes to climate change. Um, I also have postgrad qualification in microbiology, uh, but I quickly went into commerce and I spent most of my career in um, multinationals, large corporates. Um, ranging from supplier and development and operational standards around the world and mergers and acquisitions and all that sort of stuff. I've always done public, spirited things. I thought it was important to do that during my career. So I've been on the board of hospital trusts. I've been health and safety commissioner and head of the um, audit committee of the health and safety executive. I've been on the Competition and Markets Authority as a panel member and all those sorts of things. Um, When I left my last corporate role, I actually set about uh, becoming an entrepreneur, which I'd always had an ambition to do, and co-founded a science tech business, which was, in the end, very successful. Uh, But at the same time, I was asked by Tony Blair's former health star to go into the largest hospital trust in the UK, 
and see whether we could commercialise it and make it more efficient. Uh, so I spent three days a week as an executive director doing that for two years. Uh, so if you want to know anything about health economics, I'm your man. I could bore you to death uh, for a very long time on what's wrong with the NHS and why it's very difficult to change what's going on there. Um, I became head of the British Chambers of Commerce uh, in uh, 2011, I think it was, uh, tw- um, and resigned in 2016 uh, because I had yeah. the temerity to say that I thought Britain could do very well outside the European Union. Uh, number 10 Downing Street didn't like that and put a huge amount of pressure on the organisation. So I resigned in order not to bankrupt them and uh, set myself up as chair of the um, Vote Leave Business Council and uh, a member of the campaign committee of Vote Leave, uh, which was, of course, successful in the sense that we did actually vote to leave the European Union. Not that you'd uh, think that was the case uh, if you were observing the government's actions in the last uh, several years. Um, so uh, once I uh, finished uh, campaigning for Brexit, and that included being co-chair of Leave Means Leave, um, I uh, semi-retired, but volunteered to be a voluntary chair of a uh, business network called the Independent Business Network of Family Businesses. Uh, family businesses, including sole traders, are 84% of UK business. And they're also the place from which most innovation and change comes from. So very important that they have a voice. They do not have a voice through the current uh, business organisations, in particular the CBI, who represent large multinationals. Uh, I know of what I speak because I was their economic spokesperson for five years and chairman of the CBI Distributive Trade Panel uh, when I was in corporates. Um, And I'm also actually on a government committee called the Regulatory Policy Committee, which analyses the impact assessments of legislation. So that's me long and short. Right. So the, even the whistle stop tour, you have to, you know, is a, is a reasonably lengthy affair. But uh, it's fair to say, you, I mean, you've really have experience of businesses of all types. I mean, right from right at the top. I know you work with some, some of the big supermarket firms, for example. Um, how would you say Whitehall, this is a very broad question, but do you think Whitehall is cognizant of the kind of needs of business people and responsive to them in your experience? And has um, that changed over your career? Yeah, it has changed, and, and I think the answer is broadly uh, that there are elements of Whitehall that want to be responsive, uh, but are incapable of being responsive in a, in a good way. Mm-hmm. Now, that uh, very long introduction, if you've been in, bu- in business for 45 years, uh, you end up finding you've done quite a bit of stuff. Um, I would say that during that period, uh, on and off, I've interacted with government for 45 years. Um, so I've got a reasonable idea of how it has changed. Being a member of the European Union has actually infantilised both Whitehall and the political class in the UK. They've sort of become a county council as opposed to a proper country. Um, and I think that there's a, a lot of work needed to be done uh, to actually adjust that situation going forward. But I also think that some of the tasks that government are being asked to undertake, for example, the retained EU law bill uh, is a good example of this, require a lot of specialist knowledge and they require uh, government to really put the foot down on the accelerator. Uh, and I don't think Whitehall's equipped to do that. You know, Whitehall's driving a 2CV 
in the slow lane with a wonky engine, uh, whereas actually you need a Ferrari. So in the fast lane, and really to, in order to do that, they need to contract in specialists. Uh, I also am a great believer that actually, uh, I think that voters should get what they voted for. So I quite like the American system whereby the senior civil servants change as political appointees when new governments arrive because that then delivers democracy uh, as opposed to the vested interests or the prejudices of Whitehall or in fact the incapabilities of Whitehall for that matter. But having said all that, um, uh, at least it's Whitehall. Uh, you know, having been a member of the European Parliament, I experiencing the uh, absurdities of Strasbourg, um, it could be worse. It could be Strasbourg. Yeah. I mean, you were, as you said, in your answer to the first, to my first question, you set up a, a business leave organisation in 2016. I mean, looking at Brexit now, whether or not you supported it or not, it doesn't feel as though the UK has actually differentiated it very much, itself very much from the European model since we actually left. Partly perhaps because of the pandemic getting in the way, but I mean, where are we in terms of, you know, prosecuting Brexit, if you like? Well, there are some bits and pieces that have been quite useful. You know, we will save £220 billion worth of contributions to the EU over the next 10 years, which is not inconsiderable. I don't know where the money's gone, by the way but the government's clearly chosen it. Um, we, there are bits of uh, progress. So we have uh, rolled over the EU trade deals and we've made some of them better and ha have been able to create trade deals with countries that the EU doesn't have trade deals with. Um, there are certain bits and pieces that have been uh, prosecuted by the government uh, to take advantage of the opportunities of Brexit. But I have to say that for the most part, all the political parties, including the ruling party of the UK, have chosen not to pursue the opportunities of Brexit. They've chosen not to go for growth. They've chosen not to, not to stimulate business through deregulation or tax cuts. They've chosen not to differentiate, differentiate ourselves from the EU and to stay as close as possible. And that is a political choice the big problem is, for people who wanted change, is that there is no political party that at the moment is actually willing or prepared or equipped to make a choice to do it. I mean, which areas? I, I think of things like gene editing and GMOs in particular. Um, and given your own background in science, I think that might be an interesting area yeah. to discuss. Which areas do you think we're looking at we, we could legislate reasonably quickly in to give ourselves the kind of boost that the economy so obviously needs? Well, smaller businesses are overwhelmed with legislation. I mean, the truth of the matter is that most small business people don't know 90% of legislation exists. So they're, they're not actually, uh, this legislation is actually of no practical value anyway from the mm -hmm. point of view of actually producing behaviour changes. Uh, the, the stuff that people do know exists provides a, a massive um, administrative burden. You know, the GDPR uh, uh, exercises for both consumers and the providers is just outrageously complex. Say, the same with uh, money laundering uh, rules, for example, uh, where we have uh, very bureaucratic rules 
that apply to 100% of the population in order to deal with 0.01% of the population. It's, it, it's silly. Uh, that re the retained EU law bill is a classic example where there are two things going on there. One is that we need to convert that body of legislation into English law so that the English courts can actually start to process it uh, over time and it becomes part of common law um, because it's not at the moment. It's actually subject to European uh, law, which is very different. Uh, but also there are very specific pieces of legislation in that body of legislation that are unduly bureaucratic. You know, the ergonomics directive where businesses have to make sure that the desks and computer screens and the chairs are all ergonomically suitable uh, and do an audit every year. I mean, if you tot up the total cost of doing that stuff, uh, which is pretty well common sense, and as most people uh, seem to be working from home at the moment, if they're working in offices, um, would also be extremely intrusive. Uh, it, it's that's and I could go on. You know, there's yeah. there's the the the, the uh, agency workers directive, which is still uh, on the statute books, which prevents people doing the gig economy effectively, that they may want to do, uh, very likely want to do, and is very important for businesses that have major peaks and troughs of activity, for example, in the hospitality sector or agriculture and so on. Um, Working at I Heights Directive, you know, people can go to B and Q and buy a ladder and clear their own gutters. But if you're if you're employing somebody, they're not allowed to do that anymore. They have to build scaffolding. It's just outrageous. A major imposition on citizens, but also a real cost to business. It is a real cost. I mean, the Agency Workers Directive cost billions when it was introduced. Mm. I mean, is it just a case of is this? probably going to be repealed within the next couple of years when we because we are going through this massive exercise that yeah. you've mentioned of getting rid of sort of two and a half thousand pieces of eu legislation even more, yeah even more than that uh, because they discovered another 1500 uh, at the back of the cupboard you know uh, and most of this legislation by the way was never given any democratic scrutiny in the uk or indeed in brussels uh, because a lot of these things are actually introduced by diktat through the comitology process where European committees of experts produce regulation without reference to any politicians at all. Uh, I always said that if you wanted to shut down and declare martial law in the UK, the vets uh, are the people who can do it because the veterinary legislation to protect animals from disease was, is so draconian they could literally stop people moving around the country. Uh, this sort of thing is you know, an outrage, really, that it, that we're allowing it to continue. Do, am I confident that it will go through? Who knows? There are a lot of people who support various pieces of legislation for vested interest reasons. Mm -hmm. Whitehall itself is not keen on doing it because it's a big task and it's beyond them. Uh, we really need... No business would behave like this. If a business had a big change programme, what they would do is bring in a separate team of people they would actually contract in a team of experts who could get through this stuff in the Ferrari in the fast lane rather than in the 2CV in the slow lane. Slow lane. You know, that's the way to do it. Mm -hmm. So you think it's really worth, worth spending a bit of money to get this thing done properly? Rather be than because it would be a huge benefit to the economy. Mm. You know, it would be a major stimulus, yeah. especially to the smaller businesses that are the innovators. 
uh, who are the major employers. Well, that brings us, yeah, I mean, that brings us neatly onto your kind of current role. You mentioned it with the independent business network. It does strike me that large corporates, it's pretty easy for them to get their voice heard by dint of their name recognition and organisations like those you've worked for, like the CBI. But, I mean, how, how hard is it for both you as the, in the IBN and also individual small businesses to get their concerns heard in the corridors of power? It's very difficult. Uh, very difficult indeed. I mean, multinationals carry a lot of clout. Uh, they can often be major donors to political parties or they can actually, and often not directly, through uh, cooperation projects and so on. Um, they um, are able to game the system. They have, you know, a lot of resource. They'll have a whole department who are just, uh, whose sole role is to deal with government uh, and get their points across and actually achieve the end that they wish to achieve. Um, so they can game the system in that way. They can keep out competition um, and become monopolistic, which is, of course, the direction big businesses always go in if they're left mm. in their own devices. The, the so-called moat. They Ex- love a moat. They love a moat, exactly. Yeah, um, and, um, the, you know, smaller businesses, like the one, uh, the one, many of the businesses in the Independent Business Network, uh, simply haven't got the time uh, or the resource to influence government. They're too busy surviving, too busy actually doing the business mm-hmm. rather than be able to devote time to influencing government, which is a very nebulous uh, activity um, and often doesn't produce any clear or quick results. Uh, so actually providing a voice for those organisations is really important. We do get access to... Um, ministers uh, and Whitehall, uh, we also can communicate with the megaphone through the media, uh, both... Either. Um, <laughs> both, uh, An excellent podcast. media, <laughs> excellent podcasts, exactly. And, uh, you know, the, the broadcast media. But mainstream media is unbelievably ignorant of a lot of the arguments around specific uh, pieces of policy. Um, and will often shape the general view of things in a way that's perverse. How can you expand on that a bit? I mean, well, climate change is a classic example. You know, our organisation wrote a report last year called The True Path to Net Zero. It wasn't questioning the objective. Um, I mean, the objective is questionable, but it wasn't questioning it. What it was simply saying is, if we're going to achieve a net zero result in the UK, we ought to do it in a way that is least cost and beneficial for the economy and people. Um, Broadcast media in the mainstream have taken on climate change and the policies surrounding it as a religious uh, deity. They simply, there's simply no argument, there's no debate uh, it is simply a fact as far as they're concerned. Um, the truth of the matter is that the government's had a very useful fig leaf in the practical, um, the practical exemplar of what the policies to reach net zero have produced. They are using the Ukraine war as the excuse for the cost of living crisis. In reality, had the Ukraine war not happened, there would still have been a cost of living crisis 
because the root cause of it is actually the policies the government have adopted to reach net zero. The cost of renewables is significantly higher than the cost of hydrocarbons as a source of energy. They're also unreliable. So hydrocarbon has to be kept on board to fill in the gaps when wind isn't blowing, for example. Uh, those costs are seen in a number of ways. This, the renewables are supported by taxpayers through subsidies. There is an additional cost because of uh, a, um, a requirement for hydrocarbon producers to pay a green levy. Uh, and also, uh, there is the direct cost that the consumer pays. So the UK economy and UK citizens are paying a very high cost for the government's chosen policies to reach net zero, when they could be actually paying much lower costs and competing with competitive countries in a much more effective way which creates wealth, which can then be taxed and spent on other things like the health service, for example. Mm. These things are really important for ordinary citizens and for businesses who, of course, aren't protected by any of the government support mechanisms uh, that apply to consumers. Um, so we've got a situation on climate change where mainstream media are simply uh, towing a line that there is no debate to be had on how net zero should be met. And that is causing major costs to the economy and major costs to citizens. It strikes me that some of the targets, again, regardless of whether you're massively in favour of net zero or not, so the ban on petrol cars that's going to come, I think, 2030, mm. I don't, it doesn't feel as though we as a nation are seven years away from having the infrastructure or or being able to afford electric cars. I mean, do, do you think they're going to end up having to kind of push that back or abandon it? Or? I think they're going to have to revisit the policy, whoever's in power, because it's simply not going to happen in the way that they uh, would like to wish it to be. Mm. Um, so I think some politicians imagine that just because they've said it, it's going to happen but actually have to do a lot of things to make things happen, especially on that scale. And some of the things that have to be done are enormous. You know, the amount of cost and also resource in terms of, say, provision of electrical engineers, you know, would eat up the entire population of electrical engineers in the UK just to provide the network for uh, electricity delivery. Um, we'd have to have huge quantities of wind farms on land in the UK, for example, in order to provide a reasonable level of energy security from wind. On many days last year, wind provided 5% of our energy needs and gas, oil and coal, 69%. That doesn't sound like a programme that's getting towards a net zero approach, does it? Despite the fact, of course, that that programme is questionable in any event because the UK could be 100% virtue signalling uh, green and we would only change carbon emissions globally by 1% mm. because the real producers of carbon are China, India and so on. 
And it's massive hypocrisy on the part of government, virtue signalling, to destroy British industry and jobs and, and wealth production uh, in order uh, to allow the export of those jobs and the pollution that it produces to places like China. I mean, it's, you couldn't make it up. And there is a school of thought um, among some leavers, particularly, I'm thinking people like John Mills, for example, that what the UK needs to do is kind of retool and restore our manufacturing base uh, and, and so on. I mean, how much sympathy do you have with that view? How realistic do you think it is, bearing in mind the various kind of political policy headwinds that, mm. that you've just described? I have sympathy for the a- analysis of the problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, John Mills, um, one of the, the key solutions he's tended to veer towards is trying to manage the value of the currency. I think that's extraordinarily difficult to do in practice, even if it were desirable, which it probably isn't. Um, but the analysis of the problem is, is, is sound. In the late 1800s, the UK um, had 100, 170% of GDP invested overseas. Uh, the city found better returns than investing in UK manufacturing. The Germans had nowhere else to invest other than in Germany. The Americans were expanding their own sort of internal empire within, uh, within the United States, in the, you know, the West, um, and uh, invested in American manufacturing. Um, so Britain has underinvested in manufacturing for about 150 years, by comparison with some... Uh, peer group countries like the United States and Germany. Um, That's been a chronic problem, partly because the city has preferred to put its money elsewhere. In order to actually reverse that problem, uh, the returns on manufacturing in the UK have to be sufficient to make it attractive. So the government, you know, if they're going to produce a policy of growing productivity and you get the best bang for buck in productivity, investing in manufacturing, because services tend to simply expand, not become more productive. AI, AI might change that, by the way, but it will be uh, a historic change because historically the city has grown, but it's simply grown by adding more people mm-hmm. at, at you know, high cost. Um, to Although the, Goldman to Sachs has fired 3,000 people, I think. Yeah, so, it'll be yeah. very interesting. Maybe they've it's got all the changed. AI. Maybe they've got the AI. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Uh, we are in a, a state of change. That's not to say we shouldn't invest in services, but we should actually expand our manufacturing by half again. I mean, Germany sustains a, ma- a percentage of their economy in manufacturing of over 20%. Ours is 9.5%. Germany is a modern economy in Western Europe. There's no reason why we couldn't have manufacturing represent 15% of our economy, for example. Mm-hmm. It was 20% in the 1970s. It was 40% in the 1950s. Um, Singapore which is a wealthy country, GDP per capita, uh, has a very large manufacturing sector. Uh, Korea, uh, which is now approaching the GDP per capita of the UK, UK has a very large manufacturing sector, as, as does Japan. Um, the UK could stimulate manufacturing, could make it more attractive to invest in, and it would get a much bigger productivity gain from that than anything else it could do. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Do you think we sometimes, especially in media, we talk in quite broad brush terms and there's too much of a kind of firewall between what we call tech and what we call manufacturing when actually and often they're kind of two sides of the same coin. I mean, an average modern factory is going to have in enormous amounts of new technology going yes. on. Yeah, no, absolutely. And of course, it's not necessarily a source of employment, um, a major source of employment, because it'd be, you know, robotics will actually provide a lot of the um, efficiency for manufacturing. Um, that's not to say that small traditional style manufacturing can't take place as well. I mean, certainly I've visited up and down the country over the years, lots and lots of businesses who are still manufacturing in the UK. I mean, people don't realise how many businesses there are out there. We are still, I think, the seventh largest manufacturer in the world, uh, even though it's a small proportion of our economy. Um, it's... Um, it's amazing where they are as well, you know, in places like Somerset, uh, Yorkshire, uh, Worcestershire and, play, and other parts of the country. We have serious manufacturers. We still have the only manufacturer of vacuum cleaners in Europe. And it's not Dyson. It's actually pneumatic. The people who make Henry's Hoovers that you see in every hotel in the country and around the world. Uh, you know, just as an example, uh, we still sustain basic manufacturing in the UK. Uh, where there's a will to invest, and particularly family businesses mm. uh, who are less um, vulnerable in many ways to short-termism of the markets and could actually invest for the long term. Uh, so there's no reason why the UK can't become uh, much stronger in manufacturing and get better productivity and GDP per capita uh, from it. I was um, on a, Relatively, you talk about investment, though. I was interested in something you tweeted a day or two ago, about how attractive the UK remains for foreign investors as well. You're talking about a German company that yes. whose founders decided to come here rather than yeah. stay in Germany. So what's well, going on there? Why, what is it about Britain, even post-Brexit, that... Yeah, even despite the, yeah, yeah. All, all, the, all the bad things I've yeah. said about, <laughs> the, about the way things operate here. Um, I mean, PwC produced a report just recently uh, which stimulated that conversation where it was saying that we are the number three uh, most liked uh, place to invest to 
to start a business uh, because uh, people view the UK as having a favourable financial and regulatory regime. Um, it's exactly that, of course. I mean, the, the, the company I was talking about before, uh, uh, which is a fintech company, founded by German entrepreneurs and now very large, uh, came over to the UK several years ago because they felt that Germany was a very difficult place to do business for new types of technology and that the UK was a great place to do business. And it's about uh, the way in which the UK is a centre for um, academia. So we've got the intellectual resources here to be able to populate those sorts of businesses. Uh, it's a an on, it's an, uh, an enterprise facing country by comparison with other European countries, uh, but could do a lot more. And that's the point I'm making about taking the opportunities of Brexit. You know, we could be like Singapore. Mm. Um, and it's also a place where the city is available to invest in those sorts of organisations through uh, venture capital and private equity, for example. Um, much stronger in America, of course, but the UK and London it particularly is still a major financial centre. So all those things make the UK attractive because there are other things like the common law legal system, which people like. They make contracts here when they can choose other places to do that. Uh, the language, which is very helpful because English is a global language. And the, the time zone, of course, we often refer to because it's the European time zone. Okay, well, um, you mentioned, just to finish off with, you mentioned you ran or helped run uh, an NHS trust um, for a few years under the Blair government. We are now in the grip of a very profound mm. crisis mm. in the health service. And I don't think it's just, you know, the ideologues of Tufton Street who think the NHS is in need of reform. Even Even the public who love the NHS can see that it's not working. Just... From your own experience of having worked a bit in the health service, what do you think are the kind of core issues and potential solutions? Okay. We'll have to talk in broad terms because it's a vast organisation. But Well, it's a vast subject. I could talk yeah. for a very long time, so I'll try and focus in on a few things. Uh, I mean, just to, cor to correct you, it wasn't under the Blair government. It was Tony Blair's former health czar. Ah, okay. It was actually under the Tory government. Uh, okay. enough. Mayor Culper. Uh, but he, but he, he, he was looking for somebody who'd shown an interest in um, health service, but also had a lot of business experience to see what sort of perspective I could have in relation to uh, making them more efficient and cost effective uh, and, and actually commercialised. And it's just the, you know, very interesting contrasts. I mean, for example, the, the trust I was in had three organisations working in they're doing reviews at the cost of a million pounds each. Um, uh, McKinsey's, uh, Simpler, uh, and PwC, um, all of whom were producing reports that the management had neither the capacity nor the capability to implement. So, you know, that's one of the... So sometimes getting outside people it isn't always the way of spending your money. Isn't, unless, no. you, unless they've got the locus to actually deliver. So, for example, the on the retained EU law bill, they could simply go through the bill, uh, look at each law and decide what change needs to take place. Mm -hmm. But if you're in an NHS trust, 
where you're looking at operations, only the operators can make the changes. So, uh, yes, it's horses for courses in that respect. But the McKinsey stuff was very interesting because it done a major analysis of um, the cost structure. Nobody in the organisation had any idea about what things cost, for example. The um, finance department had over 600 people employed in it, which was actually the same number of people... Just for one trust? For one trust. Wow. This was the same number of people that Tesco, global Tesco, for what was at the time a £20 billion business, had less people in their finance department than this one trust. But nobody in the finance department could produce a P&L. It took me quite a while to work out why they couldn't produce one, and that's because they didn't know how to. Because so that's a profit and loss for anyone. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So there was no way of actually running the organisation in a commercial sense because they simply hadn't got a commercial head on. Yeah. Uh, we had health tourism taking place. People were flying in from Asia. In this, in this particular um, organisation, because of where it was located, mainly from Bangladesh, um, and they were being treated and then leaving without being charged. There wasn't a single um, credit card machine in the organisation, for example, uh, to take payments. Something you, you just would see everywhere on the continent. Um, they uh, operated the operating theatres from nine to five, five days a week. All of the private hospitals in London operate their operating theatres from nine till midnight, seven days a week. So they're under, massively underutilising the uh, capital investment that taxpayers put into the organisation. The, mm. One of the key reasons they couldn't do it, by the way, was not that the medical staff wouldn't be prepared to do it, but that the people who pushed the trolleys into the operating theatres weren't prepared to do it. Mm -hmm. So the unions of the ancillary workers simply wouldn't work weekends. Um, and, I mean, these are just simple... We had the most up-to-date uh, equipment for scanning, which they could have actually, they could have actually sold time in relation to to the private sector, but they wouldn't do it because there was a sort of almost a communist approach within the uh, management, uh, which simply thought that that was uh, immoral mm. to sell these things to the private sector. Let me just just to finish. I mean. The things you describe all sound, you know, soluble relatively quickly. But even if we did all those things and made hospitals hugely efficient, do you think that the actual model of a kind of state-run health service that we have, which no one really replicates in any other developed country, yeah. is sustainable, particularly in the light of the demographics of this country? A lot more older people with comorbidities who need lots of treatment and potentially social care on top of it. I mean, do you think in 20 years or something we might have moved to a more European-style health system? I hope so. I don't think it's sustainable. I mean, the actual fact, you just said that those things that could go on for a very long time were seem to be easily doable. But one of the reasons they're not doable in the NHS is the very fact you were pointing to, which is the structure prevents it. Any organisation of that scale that's been in existence without any competition or any major upheaval for 70 years is going to have major problems. I mean, you think of any organisation that doesn't have any competition, doesn't have any 
stress testing uh, effectively uh, that actually would succeed. It's just not credible. It does need more money. And I think people would be prepared to pay more money if they thought they were going to get something for that money as opposed to it going into a black hole. So we really need to... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply introduce money into the organisation or into health services in the UK by other means, through insurance, through um, pr the private sector and so on. People will invest their, their hard-earned money into the health service, but it needs to be a different health service. Mm -hmm. And actually, I found it quite bizarre when there was this hoo-ha around um, the Prime Minister not having a GP. And the truth is, there's at least 4 million people in the UK uh, have private health insurance, yeah. which means that they're not putting a burden on the NHS. Now, people, are, uh, and therefore, in a sense, they're paying taxes for other people to use the NHS and then paying for themselves to use something else, yeah. uh, which is a relief to the NHS and should be applauded. It's very progressive. Very if you progressive. think about it, yeah. Very, very progressive. And look, people then say, well, yeah, it's the same doctors, you know. But the truth of the matter is, this trust I was in, the, doc, the, the, the very highly qualified surgeons and so on would arrive in the NHS and put an NHS head on because they knew they couldn't influence anything. Mm. The management would get in the way. They'd then leave, they'd put the private sector head on, drive off in their Rolls Royces, and I'm not kidding, they had Rolls Royces, to Harley Street or to the private hospitals around London and work in their own time uh, for efficient organisations who paid more. Mm. Um, so that's, that's the state of play that we have in, in the UK in health services. By simple um, uh, dint of the fact that people will not pay more into the tax system correctly, uh, the NHS will wither on the vine and become a basic health service, a parallel health service to private health, which people will also be buying Mm-hmm. Well, John, I mean, we've touched on a great deal of topics, and I'm sure we could be here all day talking about your various experiences in, in the business world, but we'll, we will wrap it up there. Thank you so much for joining us on the CapEx podcast. Thank you all at home as well, as ever, uh, for listening. If you have enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts, and of course, tell your friends by good old-fashioned word of mouth. Do join us again next week for another episode of the CapEx podcast. <laughs>